So, uh, welcome back to Infinity Gamer. Uh, this is JP Gerald. I'm your host. This episode, this episode, this, this podcast is about seeking justice for the racial, linguistic, and neurological minority. If you don't know what that's about, just listen. We talk about racism, we talk about whiteness, we talk about language education, we talk about language in general, we talk about uh, disability, specifically neurodivergence, because that's my perspective, but other aspects of it come up. So now look. We're in a situation where, like, my book is causing discussion. You know, people are mad already. They don't like the fact that says pathology of whiteness. I explained the title of the book in the second page, and then I explained it again in the introduction, and again at the end of the first part. Very clear why the book's called what it's called. I'm trying to make a point about the fact that centering whiteness in language education has made the field harmful because whiteness as a concept and ideology is harmful. Why is it pathology? You've got to read the book. It's not that complicated. But like, you know, it's still selling. Now, selling for an academic book is not enough to quit your job. I'm not saying I'm trying to quit my job. I'm just saying, like, you could, you write a best-selling novel, you don't have to do anything else. You write a quote-unquote best-selling academic book, which I'm not saying this is, but even if you bought a best-selling academic book, you got to keep doing something else. They just don't pay very much. Or, you know, like, for example, people have ordered this book on Amazon, and Amazon put it on their system through their algorithms without determining how many were in stock, and then the publisher only printed so many copies and they're sending them out to all the people who ordered them through the publisher so the people who ordered through Amazon are having delays and so forth. Now, I have never given anybody the Amazon link to my book. I have always told people to go to the publisher. Not because I have some vendetta against Amazon. The publisher is still a corporation that I like better. But, like, just because I know that you can get it there. I didn't even know it would be on Amazon. Now, the Kindle version works, so if you want to use Amazon and get the Kindle and get it faster, you can do that. But anyway, uh, some people are having issues there on Amazon. But otherwise, like, it's still selling as much as sort of an academic book from someone who's new to the field can sell. And so they told me it sold ten times the amount of pre-orders that they usually get. And I'm not the most prominent person they've ever had. They've had people who I respect, like Nelson Flores and so forth, be part of the, you know, editing or writing books for them. And the fact that mine is the one that's, like, sold is, is I don't know, I've been out here beating the streets marketing it, because, like, I don't think it's that. I think that for some people, this is something that's really needed. Now, by the time you hear this in early November, or I guess, Halloween, technically, so probably you'll hear it in November unless you hear it the day of. You know, maybe something we different. Maybe it will have sold a lot. Maybe it will have stopped selling. Maybe everybody who, maybe there's a small, fervent audience for this book, and they're all going to buy it immediately, and then nobody else will buy it. Who knows? I'm not going to get my royalty check until next summer. I, I get one a year. So my hope is to sell enough in, with this first royalty check that I'm sort of set because I say all this to say that I have an idea for a follow-up. The publisher already wants me to work on something. I'm not going to do it for a while. I need a better contract. If you're listening, they're not listening, but if they were. And um, I need to 
um, come up with something. And, like, I, all my ideas are about disability and race and so forth. But... I have language ideas, because what I think about as a follow-up book, and we'll see if it actually happens, is, like, I've put this course, this, this whole thing together that's about what's wrong with the industry, and, and ultimately the underlying implication is that a lot of these problems are because these programs that train language teachers do not take these ideologies into account. Some are doing it better now. But you can graduate with a degree or a certificate in language teaching without engaging with harmful ideologies and understanding your connections to them. And that's the fundamental problem. Is that going to necessarily make you better than in front of a classroom? No, but I think it'll make you care about your students more. So I want to put together not a textbook, but just sort of a like, I want to examine some syllabi, some curricula for current language education programs. Say, here's what they should keep, here's what they should get rid of, and here's what they should add. And make it so that because all this stuff I'm doing, all these talks, all these books, these are mostly going to be consumed by people who are already in the field. And they have already committed harm the way that I did. Part of the, what you see in the book is that I'm admitting that I, when I didn't know that my participation in these ideologies, I was committing harm. So I hope that people can be gotten to beforehand. And we don't have to do all this backfill. All the white people that I've worked with who have trying to challenge whiteness, they didn't come to until they were adults. And they're doing what they can. But like that's still several years as adults where they could have been doing better, and it's not necessarily their fault, it's the country's fault, it's the school's fault, whatever. Anyway, um, I said that today because today I'm talking to a student, a master's student, Hannah Lukow, at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's going to tell me from her perspective, sort of starting in the field, which I've done before with her new English teacher, but this is a person who's really studying it, she's studying it in a program, Windows and Florence Works, a program that's trying to do better, so I'm going to talk to her a little bit about her program, a little bit about what she thinks that people need to do before they get into the field um, and from her perspective in her workplace, which we won't go into because she said she doesn't want to get in trouble with the job, but, um, you know, working as a new language education person, you know? So anyway, if you like the show, you can uh, support it on Patreon. You know that. Please do buy the book. And otherwise, thank you for listening. So we're here to talk a little bit, but uh, I'm going to let introduce herself, um, tell us a little bit about her work, her studies, and that sort of thing, and then we'll get into our conversation. But thanks for being here. Of course. So happy to be here. You were going to introduce yourself and your work. And it... uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, this is my first time being on a, any kind of podcast. But yeah, my name is Hannah Luco. I am an MSED candidate, I guess now, at um, the University of Pennsylvania. I'm also um, an English language educator. I teach adult ESL primarily to immigrant and refugee populations. Um, And yeah, um, should I talk a little bit about uh, my research or? Okay. So in addition to that, I'm also really interested in, um, um, wait, I'm, I'm sorry.
I don't know what you're interested um, in. Don't worry about it. Uh, which is, I have, I have plenty that I already say from what you said there, but I just was, you know, if you were going to tell me about the research, you could. Maybe I'll just come up in the conversation. Anyway, so, um, because as I told you when we first spoke, I did similar things in terms of the adult education space, right? And it's, we will leave your employer out of this, but it's a community <laughs> situation, right? It's a community, yeah. community language situation. And, um, I, you know, when I came back from Korea, um, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I had decided pretty late in my time in Korea that I was going to keep with the language teaching thing. I was teaching high school over there, and I was like 22, 23 when I was leaving. Mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. like, well, this is, you know, I'm not really any older than like a college graduate. Like, I'm just I'm still the same. So um, I decided, like you, I was going to get a master's. And um, which means I was really committing to the, the language thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's just funny mm-hmm. because I chose a school that I'm still paying off, but we don't need to talk about that. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. so I was like, well, now I need a job. So I get back home and I had a little bit of time to think about it because they give you a, like a sort of leaving bonus, not a lot, but mm-hmm. enough to like a month or two where I don't have to think about it that much. And then I got the only job I could get, and I realized that because in New York, which is the same in Pennsylvania, um, you know, you gotta be certified to get a public school job, right? You can't just mm-hmm. walk to a public mm-hmm. school, right? Which I'm not necessarily saying is a bad thing. I have issues with what's in the certification, but like, yeah, you should probably yeah. know. What you, you probably know what you're doing, you know. Um, and uh, so I was like, well, I can't do that. I actually applied to be a teaching fellow, which in New York is like. Um, you pay a, a small amount and then you get a master's and you're yeah. in the classroom pretty they don't have it in most cities. Yeah. It's just that's the New York game. Um very competitive I, kind of deal. Right. I didn't get in because I realized they wanted someone totally green and I had experience. I had been yeah. teaching high school for two yeah. years, right? It's a different experience yeah. than working here. But anyway, so then I didn't know and I, and I got a job at a summer camp for like exchange Europeans. I was like teaching English at like a summer like a I don't know, they were like 17. But I said, you know, the only jobs I'm going to get are adult jobs. And I couldn't get mm-hmm. one for a while. I had, I worked with those same summer camp people the next spring. And then again that summer. And I was like, I need a, like an adult job. And I went to one place and I taught a lesson. And the guy told me I need more adult experience before he would hire me to work with adults, which is a little silly because how am I going to get it? Um, <laughs> right. Right. And then I'm getting to the point. Don't worry. And then um, I got a job at a what turned out to be a shady, shady for-profit school. Uh, but it got me in the adult door, and I did that for a while. Um, did that, and then I worked in a community-type place when I was – but there I was. But then I was running, yep. the, was running the program yep. at that point because I had my master's by then. So I say all of that to say, you know, ending up in the adult space – and then I'm still in the adult space, just not I don't teach language these days. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to think about how little respect adult learners get when it comes to what is seen as a basic skill like language. People don't disrespect adult learners when they're trying to code, right? Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. or or they want to learn uh, uh, European colonial language, right? Or because, you know, or they want to learn art. I don't know. You, know, you want to go to art class when you're 30, yep. no one's going to look down on you. You know what I'm saying? But if it's, exactly. if it's something that's seen as a basic skill here, which obviously English is seen as, then if you quote unquote can't do it, then you are absolutely stigmatizing. It goes with like, you're someone who's actually got training. 
obviously you're not finished with your training, but you are getting training and not only training, but you're learning the research and that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. you don't have to do any of that to be an adult educator. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. So if you could think about it, if you want to talk a little bit about the way you've seen that play out in your context of how there's a lot of people who are very well-meaning that they should not be doing this at all. Um, yeah. Well, my background is kind of similar in that I also, after I graduated college and I did an English lit undergrad and I didn't know what I was going to do, um, I moved to Japan. Uh, the week after my graduation, I moved to Japan and I was there for three years teaching English, um, actually not through the JET program. So the person I was dating at the time got a job in Japan. And so I kind of was like, I'm just going to move there and I'm going to find something to do. And the first job I came across that was willing to hire me was actually like an English kindergarten kind of situation, kind of um, in Japan, they call them Eikaiwa, like language schools. And um, yeah, it was like, all of the things that I know now as an adult to like look for as red flags in that job, like, Oh, they didn't even ask for my references. They just want to hire me. That's great. You know, uh, I didn't really think through that and I was just really stoked to, you know, be employed. Um, but yeah, that was a really difficult and challenging experience. And then after I did that for about a year and I realized I had no idea what I was doing, um, in as a kindergarten teacher working with um multilingual kids who spoke Japanese and English I um went and I worked for a dispatch company actually in Japan and I don't know if you're familiar with like uh the English language teaching industry in Japan but they have assistant language teachers I'm sh- I know Epic there's something similar in Yeah yeah I, w- I was in Epic so yeah Yeah. Yeah. So they have this program to recruit, you know, so-called native speakers of English to serve alongside Japanese teachers of English in public schools to be sort of a language resource or human tape recorder. Um, And that is often done through the JET JET program, which is like the national program, which recruits recent graduates to do this. But because there is so much demand from public schools for these native speaker teachers, um, that work has been outsourced also to industry. And there are all these dispatch companies who recruit um, native speaker teachers to do the same thing for less money and less benefits. So... Um, trying to get out of my first English teaching gig. I did that for a while and, um, it wasn't great, but I did receive actually some training to do that. And I got really interested in all of the issues around race and nationality and, um, the, the whole concept of the native speaker through that work. Um, so, I don't want to cut you off. I just there's a, I want to no, go ahead. say something before we get too far away from it. So I feel for myself and everybody who entered the field before a lot of this work came out, you know, because a lot of the, the mid 2010s, 
a lot of the contemporary work on both translanguaging and racial linguistic ideologies, like all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, they had shorter articles, but like when they really, the ones that like pop, pop, pop with those concepts came out like in the last decade. Right. And yeah. so yeah. I, I can criticize my master's program because I graduated in 2012 for upholding ideologies in general, but I cannot criticize them for not assigning something that did not exist. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm in a situation where I do think that my old program let us down in some ways, but, you know, teachers coming around now, I mean, there's still programs that aren't doing it, but like teachers coming around now, they really have access to so these concepts that are so, I mean, everyone thinks that what comes around when they're in their thirties is like the most interesting concept. I'm sure that people <laughs> in 2005 were thinking the same thing about whatever was coming out around then. And like, you know, I would, I mean, this, I'm not going to say too much about it, but I'm in this racial equity group at uh, something I'm affiliated with. And I only joined those mostly, mostly out of curiosity and also because frankly, I'm literally an expert. So I feel like it would be useful for me to join. <laughs> uh, and because I'm not going to let them get away with tomfoolery. Um, and like, we're, I'm not, there's a, there's a meeting every month or so. And I led the last one, right, which is the right after I joined, I volunteered to lead it. I can't join this one because I'm just going to be away. But they're like, people are reading like the invisible next set. I'm like, what decade? But what decade are you, cause the Pecky McIntosh book about white privilege, uh, article about white privilege from like 1992 or whatever year it's from, right? That's useful to read as far as a continuum of discourse. Oh, the unpacking the backpack? Yeah, article. yeah, the invisible next Yeah! I read that in undergrad. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's cute. It's not a bad article from when it was written, right? I don't want to come at, come yeah. at Macintosh for being, you know, passe. When how would she know what was going to happen? Yeah. I think, yeah. and I, I say this in my book, but like, I hope thirty years from now that my work is passe. I hope. <laughs> right. Right. You know, because one of the saddest things about because there's a section in my book, and I don't talk too much about it, but it did just come out last week. So, um, of course, people hearing this are like, "What last week?" Because this is coming out. On, on Halloween, actually. Um, ooh, spooky. But um, <laughs> it's every other Monday. That's a Monday. So is that, uh, and I have ruined my own train of thought. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking about? about your racial equity group? And... Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in the book, I talk, there's a section in the book where I go through a bunch of black thinkers really quickly, not trying to introduce people to these people, but like, you know, showing that I'm, I mean, part of it is me showing that I know the lineage, but also um, using their thoughts from different eras on blackness and black issues, showing that although their language obviously is not contemporary, you know, and, and, and so forth, still really relevant. <laughs> you know, what like Du Bois was writing, you know, and, and Baldwin and, and, Obviously, Angela Davis is still with us, but still some of what she was writing in like 1972, mm-hmm. you know, and because we never listened, you know, I think that uh what white scholars are often very good at is getting phrases coined. They're not the only mm-hmm. people, but like the phrases that go into discourse are very readily attached to white scholars. Black and other racialized scholars do get 
co- terms coined in the discourse. But I think if you're outside of the circle that they're using it, you don't necessarily know where the phrase came from, you know? Um, yeah. So anyways, yeah, say and that, say everyone knows who Macintosh is because of that article. And you can say the same thing with Robin D'Angelo. And I'm not even necessarily criticizing them for what they wrote because it's just that they get apotheosized for it. Even, even, if the, even if the work is good, like I'm not really criticizing the work. Uh, whereas it takes us a century to get anyone to pay attention to us. Sorry, you were going to say it. No, no. Yeah, I mean, entering a master's program at this time is exciting. Um, and entering the field at this time is exciting because I do feel like things like racial-linguistic ideologies, perspectives on race and language teaching, there are efforts to incorporate these things into, like, training for pre-service teachers uh, with varying degrees of success. I mean, I think one of the challenges and one of the things that's maybe an opportunity or something that's interesting in my graduate program is that most of the students are not from the United States. I would say like over 90% of our students in the TESOL MA are um, from mainland China. And so talking about how race works in the U.S. and talking about how race works in other places is like, I think, yeah, it's, it's something that we have to negotiate in our classrooms as we're talking about race and language teaching because people are bringing different understandings about race to um to our classrooms and TESOL is obviously a very globalized field um and one thing I know that like race like racial linguistics although I know some people don't even like to say racial linguistics because you know it, it makes it sound like a subfield of linguistics or like linguistics isn't about race um but I'll just say it racial linguistics maybe has been critiqued for being or the work in that area has been critiqued for being too U.S. centric. So if we're talking about how to um, really like decenter whiteness in TESOL or like incorporate more of a perspective on race and racism and language teaching, like how to do that in a way that like makes sense in a number of global contexts, I think is like a, a huge challenge at least in like MAT salt programs that are often like very international. Well, so I think that because that's the publisher told me when I was negotiating, when I was putting the book proposal together, like, look, we can't publish this if you are only going to focus on the United States. Right. Mm. Not that I said that, but because they're a British publisher and they just want it to be more global. Right. And I said, I have no interest because the the ideologies that I'm talking about are not contained within borders. It, and I, it says that in the book. So what I found to read, because I give talks to international, or one of the, I don't say good things, but it is a silver lining of the pandemic is I've been able to give a lot more like webinars to places that like I would never have given a presentation in Japan. I wouldn't take a 14 hour flight for one presentation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, is, you know, I gave one to Japan. It was like nine o'clock at night here, but it was like nine in the morning there or something like that. And, um, and then, they, like, the, con- the conference, I like, continued all night, but it was all day, <laughs> which was kind of cool. I didn't stay up all day. But anyway, um, so I give presentations to international audiences, and, like, that's something that I have to think about, is, like, how, mm-hmm. because they're, the standard presentation that I give, 
which has this section, which is also in my book, where I go through, like, let's talk about some terms. Let's get on the same page about how I'm using these terms, right? And I am honest about the fact that, look, I'm still, I'm obviously coming from an American perspective in terms of how I learned the terms. But the way that I'm putting the words out there, I try to make it clear that it's not just applying to the United States. And when I talk about whiteness, which I think sometimes people in different places, they don't necessarily want to pay attention when I talk about whiteness. It's like, well, we don't have any white people here, right? Um, and I actually have an article that I wrote that's going to be in the Japanese JALT, right? Um, journal. <laughs> JALT, that's a, yeah. That's, a, that's about whiteness and, and uh, hierarchization in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm ma- making the argument that even without white people mostly being there, they're like a scepter. Um, they're on TV and the, and you know, and there's the teachers. There's yes. Nothing. You know, it's just like a presence and it's still hard for people to see what's not usually there. And I don't mean that as a metaphorical thing. There just aren't that many white people there. But Yes, <laughs> but they are there. They are there. I mean, I even remember like when I was a teacher in Japan and I was playing this this role of like the white native speaker. I mean, that was like the role I was recruited to play in some sense. So I try not to be too hard on myself. Um <laughs> But I mean, when I left that school, the students like made me cards and drawings and it was very nice. But one thing I always noticed is the students drew me with bright blonde hair and bl- bright blue eyes. And I don't, I mean, I have like dark blonde hair and brown eyes and you know, it's maybe this seems trivial, but for me that really like drove home, like how even students in Japan who maybe have limited exposure to like, I don't know, like, there aren't a lot of white people in Japan, they still had internalized this concept of whiteness and of race and of a racial phenotype that was, like, being projected onto me, and I will just, yeah, I always remember that, and how race is is at play, like, all the time, even when, even in contexts that are supposedly more homogenous, you know, race is going on. So, what I think is sometimes helpful for people who exist in contexts where white people are present but not dominant physically, right? Like, they're just, they're not the majority, physical majority, um, although they're still majoritized even if they're not there, but they're not, but it, you know what I'm saying, right? Um, is to think about anti-blackness, right? Yeah. Because there may or may not be a lot of white people around, and there may or may not be a lot of black people around. But in the conversations, anti-blackness still comes out, you know, that is, but anti-blackness is just like whiteness. My point about whiteness as a concept is that it actually, as a hierarchical thing, isn't all that different from place to place. I think that whiteness mm. itself, it's complex. It involves a lot of things, but as a concept, it's an aspiration. It's the top of a pyramid. It's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of ways, quote unquote, in, but like, it's one thing. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a monolith in which people don't really exist. Like, it's just, whereas I think that what we think of as black really does change depending on where you are. Yeah. Um, you know, the black people in the UK are not necessarily the same black people as they are in the United States. Um, I don't mean the people are different. I just mean where they're from <laughs> and stuff like that. So, um, and I can just tell you from personal experience, which is, you know, one point of data, but, um, there's a lot of points in it because I've had many experiences, but anyway, it's different in every country. 
like the way that blackness is seen. And it's different depending on context. I can tell you, I got, and I'm not trying to stereotype, but this literally happened. I got scammed one day in Beijing. Um, I got robbed and, but not like in danger robbed. Like the guy tricked me. Like he told me he was going to take me to my hostel and then he took me to an alley and said, all right, get out. Oh, no. <laughs> it was like twenty. It was like twenty degrees. It was January. I was like, "This is terrible." <laughs> um, but the weird thing is, he then asked. For, he, he basically extorted me for a bunch of money. I didn't give him what mm-hmm. he wanted. He asked me for. He says forty euros, which to me, he thought I was European. <laughs> if yeah. He's asking for euros. He knows the word dollar. If he knows the word euro. And so he sees me and he thinks European. I don't know what that means, right? Beijing, this people from the United States, people from Europe, you know, it's like it's not some obscure place. And I think that was interesting. When I was in Korea, before I spoke, they thought I was from any manner of place where there were brown people. <laughs> interesting. And like you and I would say that I don't have the, I don't know, facial phenotype or whatever, and I don't, I'm not getting into biology and all that stuff, but like, yeah. <laughs> I do not look as though I was born in Vietnam. I wouldn't say, but that is, that is, that is how I look. But that is one place that they thought I was from, just because people are darker than them there, right? Um, Indonesia, Bangladesh, they get a lot of mm-hmm, Southeast mm-hmm. and South Asia, which like you and I would say, well, that's silly, but that's, that's what they said to me. And it wasn't usually with anger. It was usually that's different. Like I'm talking about in South Korea, they would be like, huh, that you're, and you know, social norms are different there. So like it's not considered as rude to just say, Hey, you're different. Um, but, but like without hostility, like, like it's just like they, yeah, they, yeah. they would walk around saying, Oh, Weigook, Weigook just means foreigner. But it wasn't just because yeah. I was black, it's, yeah. just, it's just because I wasn't Korean. And I'm sure this is, they use the same thing in Japan, right? It's a yep, different word. Yeah. yeah, exactly, right? It was not because I was Every black. language has a word for this. Right. And then, but like <laughs> but it's not, con- it's not considered, you know, uncouth to just say, oh, it's a for- you can't call somebody a foreigner here, right? But like I'm using the word for the, yeah, translate, but I mean like, you know, um, although I had one teacher who was an adult teacher when I was working there who said that, and I was like, oh, you, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so anyway, anti-blackness, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 I've never felt nearly as endangered by it as I have in parts of the United States, but I've also, also never felt as safe as I have in my home in different parts of the United States. So, you know, it's kind of a high, high floor, low ceiling United States for me, for me. And I don't say that's true for everybody. Um, but go back to that. So we go into the adult teaching though. Yeah. So there's, when I worked at the, the community center, right? We taught, we had three or four levels of class. It was a very small program. And um, it was like 50 students per session, right? Four classes, and each class had 12 to 15 students. And, you know, I come in, and they basically had gotten a new grant. You know how nonprofits work. And so they got to hire somebody. So they hired me. Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to manage the program, and I wasn't necessarily hired to teach, but after one semester, I was like, I need to be doing this. <laughs> Like I trusted myself more than I trusted a lot of the people. No, no, that amazing. Oh my god! You know, I didn't teach all the classes, but I just I I made myself part of one of the classes. Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, you know, I get there and it's mostly like, this is the Upper East Side. I don't know if you know New York, but. A little bit, yeah. I lived upper... there for a little, a few years, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, you know the Upper East Side. People listening who aren't from New York, Upper East Side is where Gossip Girl takes place. So. Yeah. Um, it's where Carrie Bradshaw lives. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm from upstate New York, Syracuse area, so I'm not from New York, but like, I know. I know a little bit about New York. I know you know. I'm telling the audience. Um, in case they're not from, <laughs> in, case, uh, in case they don't know New York, because I have people who listen from all over the world and all that. Not, I feel like I have a lot of listeners, but they are from all over the world. It's just like one person in each place. <laughs> you never know. You never know who could be listening. I do know, because the, the analytics tell me. But, um. That's right. Yeah, so I'm saying I know that there are people from many different countries. It's just like one person in each of the countries. Um, aside from, <laughs> aside from United States, Canada, and the UK, obviously. Um, so, so anyway, and it was mostly, you had two groups of people when I got there before I did any of the hiring, right? And they're volunteers, so what is hiring? But, um, which is another thing, like, why aren't we paying these people? Why is it that these adults education interested to people who, who aren't being paid? And actually though yeah our know, field work for our master's program is still unpaid um so that that's pretty messed up but anyway there should not be and you know we'll say we'll take the commerce out of it but like come on now there this idea that i think particularly some white leftists have that there's been mm-hmm. there, that there was some time that there was civilization and nobody had like and there was no money or anything i'm like i don't know what yeah past you're thinking of i understand the relationship we have money is different but there's always been something yes and let me tell you what's wild what's wild is that this unpaid labor and again don't want to put anyone on blast here but i will say it's the way it's talked about in my context is as service learning yeah service learning and i think that is just I don't know. I mean, again, we're dealing with a context where we have international students who need to have like special kinds of work permissions to work yeah, in the yeah, field, work I mean, environment. But we understand but that there still. are limitations, but like that's still the the assumption of the field, especially when it comes to teaching adults. Like they don't do that for kids. They don't just have a bunch of volunteers teaching kids. Um, like, no, no, they would never do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're underpaid, and no, 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 but that's like a separate issue. But like the 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 issues in the adult education side of the language field, like these people are just not just being paid not just not being paid like that yeah like to get it like many of the people who do this professionally are being paid not enough but that's not the same as being paid literally nothing <laughs> literally nothing yeah you know because I, I i went to a conference in 14 maybe 2014 and um it was held by my master's program right and it was called, we used, we used to put on two little conferences every year. And this is the only conference I ever got to go to until I started like actually doing stuff <laughs> when I was like older. Like, like I'm that old when I was like 30 as opposed to like 26. <laughs> but, um, we used to put two on. One was like a real like presentation conference. I, I got my practice talking in front of audiences there. That was cool. The, the other summer, this one we did every summer was called navigating an ELT career. And it was specific. Mm. I mean, you understand what that means. But, um, and people would comment there were two panels. There was a graduates of this program panel, and then there was a employer panel. And it was the same thing every year, which is useful for people who didn't go. But it was like, employers, what are you looking for? How much do you pay? And they would give them these answers. And <laughs> all the people in the audience were these, like, <laughs> I always felt bad. But I was, the job that I had paid me, and I had benefits 
but like I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was okay. I, you know, do what I wanted to do on a given day. Um, these people were like 50 plus, like really like stretching for this dollar, for that dollar. Right. And I'm not talking down to people who don't have a lot of money. Obviously I'm doing quite the opposite. It's that this field, and yeah, it's capitalism, but it's not just capitalism. <laughs> like, like it's this field. <laughs> you know I'm saying it's, 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 it's controlled by capitalism, but so are all of the fields. And not every yeah. field is like this. Um, and you know, I talk about it in the book, but it's just like the field, it's based on this idea that we're just supposed to be paid in smiles, right? And we do all this like holidays and heroes bullshit that we do when we celebrate our students and like we have a feast with one dish from every country. Now, don't make it wrong. I love little multicultural feast day. The food is good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when my student from Mexico would bring in crickets. Delicious. <laughs> so good. They were so good. Um, and he kept coming. He, I don't know why he was in English class. There was nothing wrong with his English. I think he had some sort of speech issue where it was hard to understand him. And it's oh. like, cause like he understood everything I said. I understood everything he said, but he was kind of like mushmouth, like, it, you know, um, and I think it led people to say, oh, it's his accent. It's like, no, he probably has a certain type of disability. Um, yeah. but, like, but also, but also you understand what he's saying. You just, you, you have to try a little bit because of whatever's going on with his jaw. And you don't want to, so you're like, eh, his accent is bad. So, yeah, yeah. But the field is just like, so at that conference, when the grad, they, they, they had put together a slideshow, and I was part of the thing, and one of the things was they asked, they sent out a survey, and then they basically data visualized, right? And it was like, you know, where do you work? And they put a word cloud. I work in adult ed. I work in K-12, right? Mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. then they said, like, you know, um, what year did you graduate? These little things. And then they said, you know, <laughs> there was a slide that said salaries. Our, our graduates have salaries up to. And, up to. <laughs> and it said up to $83,000, which isn't actually bad. The only problem is when you say up to, that is not, <laughs> that's, that's not a median and even if it were a median, that would be better than this complete thing, because I know who the person was, and I talked to her. She's like, yeah. And then I talked to a few people, and it's like, it was her, and I was, like, second at, like, 48. <laughs> so, yeah. like, so it was just, like, um, and, you know, I, I've said, I think I've said this in the podcast. I can't remember what I say is on the podcast or if I'm just having conversations in real life. So forgive me, obviously, <laughs> I've said this on the podcast, but I've told this story about how around the same, we used to have this thing called teacher talking time where we would get together. You understand what, what it would be. Uh, <laughs> and the, um, the, we'd talk about issues. Somebody would come in yeah. and we'd plan things and, and, and there was like an agenda. Like we really did this. We did this from like, I want to say 2012 until, I got um, a particular job in 2000 and – oh, until I started my doctorate in, in, in 2018, and then the meetings were on Thursdays, and so were my classes. So I did it for six years. So anyway, um, it was fun. We did it well. We really planned these things, and I stayed involved in my master's program, and that was a community that, like, I got along with. And before I challenged my ideologies – and it's really interesting because I challenged my ideologies – it was a two-year period between when I left teaching language and when I started my doctoral program, and a lot of my ideas changed in between there, and they sort of got confirmed by my research. 
But while I was mm. doing it, I think I think it's harder to do at the time because the research wasn't really out there, out there. And I wasn't just reading journal articles in the years between my studies. I'm just reading journal Sure. <laughs> um, if you but, can even access them. Well, exactly. Right. Yeah. Although there, there is Sci-Hub. But, um, yes, there, there are ways. <laughs> yes. Um, although I didn't know about them my first year of my doc program. So I was reading only what I could get access. I read, I used only open access articles my first year because I, I couldn't, really? and also what was assigned in class. But like, because uh, I, I couldn't, I didn't know about SciHub and I, I used the, my university's credentials on the journal websites wrong. I just was putting in the wrong thing. Oh my gosh. So oh I just no. didn't know. So then I finally, at the same time, learned how to use the credentials correctly and got access to SciHub. I said, well, I don't care anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got hooked up with that Facebook page, Ask for PDFs from People with Institutional Access, when I was an undergrad. So I learned all the tricks. And now, actually, in grad school, I found this book for my one friend. And now I've got people like, hey, Anna, can you find a book for me? I'm like, no, just... Just go to, just look at this meme. It will tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so like I was, you know, as a person with ADHD, I've always struggled sort of socially, um, connecting with people. Um, I've always had, I've always known a lot of people and so forth, but people I was able to really, really trust were, were small. Um, but I didn't know I had ADHD, so I just thought that I struggled. I say this all to say that whenever I joined a group, I would, I would always really want to curry favor, right? And yeah. so I didn't yeah. – to, to think about these ideologies and to try to curry favor with people who are upholding them <laughs> doesn't yeah. work very well. And so I wasn't inspired to go and – um I wasn't inspired to go and challenge anything I was doing at that time. And then once I stopped teaching the language, that that actually, you know, helped me get some separation from it and realize that even the last job I had, which I did not like, it was not in language, but it still was a lot more of a stable thing. Like I said, you know, I didn't like that job because I didn't like that workplace. but And the work Mm -hmm. was boring because it was poorly managed. But what I was doing in theory could have been interesting. And then it led to what I'm doing now. Like there was, there was a path. Yeah. And I don't want to be one of the people who says like, well, you, you can't just teach forever. That's not what I am saying. Anyone listens to this, <laughs> that. but I get bored easily. And I, uh, which like I did not realize was ADHD, but is, um, and I knew that I would want to do more, whatever more meant, you know, whatever it meant, you know, so it's like I was bored teaching and I wasn't, you know, like I was working at a nonprofit job and I started recording marathons because I was bored. <laughs> I'd never yeah. run anything before, you know, I like this, like the, all this extra energy was going into running and mm-hmm. still run, but I don't really race anymore because now my energy goes into my like research and like that's really where I always wanted it to be thinking stuff, but I couldn't, I just didn't, I could I had no nothing to think of because I hadn't. So, Anyway, or at the same time, when during the teaching talking time, which is how this whole thing started, and I didn't finish what I was trying to say, um, the teacher talking <laughs> time, is that there's somebody hey, we're coming back around. Yeah, so this person <laughs> came in there and did a um, presentation about her life as an adjunct, right? And I was an oh. adjunct at the time, or maybe I had just stopped being an adjunct. I don't remember. Uh, but I had recently been an adjunct. And she was saying she worked at four schools. And she had to usually go to two schools per day to do the work. 
And she talked about the way she managed her time. And I was like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and she was being realistic. She wasn't complaining. She was just like, here's what yeah, I yeah. Because the people in the, in the teacher talking time were both graduates and current students. So there are people who wanted to hear about what, what, what it's are. like to be an adjunct. What your paths are, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I wish that I had, Again, some of it's just timing. The articles didn't really exist, but it's not like I was reading the precursors to those articles. <laughs> you know, it's not like I was reading Motha or, I mean, mm-hmm. Motha's research, because her book didn't come out until 2014, but like her articles had started to come out, you know, and I wasn't reading yeah. Kubota. I wasn't reading Kubota. Kubota and Lynn. Yeah, or... yeah, yeah. So yeah. some of these people I've met now, which is cool. Um, and I wasn't reading um, you know, I just wasn't exposed to it. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. The only, only two classes has it been that the subject of the class introduced me to the, the, the stuff. You know, there's been times in my independent classes or when I'm doing research that's like my, my initial doctoral class, a lot of the research that is dear to me came in that class, but it wasn't because it was assigned. It's because when I, when he said, go off and do your, mm, you know, a, yeah. pi, pi, or put together a pro- proposal for a study and those things that I found at that time. And it, because they were so delicious, it was my first semester, but like most of the stuff in that class, eh. Um, but then in the language, um, the language research class, because I said mm-hmm. this to you last week or whatever when we talked, I had, you had to take three groups of research to some contemporary topics. One was language, one was um, disabilities, and one was literacy. I think that's what they were, okay. right? Um, and I actually liked all three of those classes. Um, there was nothing that stood out to me in the literacy class that a particular article or anything. However, the fact that for some reason I was it helps solidify questioning what literacy even means. And then I just started doing that to everything. It's like, oh, who decided that that's what that means? <laughs> you know? And yeah. uh, but then the racial linguistics, so those articles were actually assigned to me in the language class. So, okay. and then I think they told me about the vocal prize too. So like that, 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 and that was around the same time that I started doing the research and all this. So it all just sort of came together. So it's just like, sometimes I feel like the, the, research journey I've, I've been on in the last several years is like, you know, the way that Slumdog Millionaire works where he just, he just, he just, it all happened. <laughs> it was all an accident. But it is an unraveling or it can be like an avalanche. Like you start realizing one thing is fake and just the discourse you've been socialized into your whole life. And then you're like, Oh, okay. What else is fake? I was actually, it's funny. I was right before we started recording, I was watching the show. Is it cake? And, like, that's kind of how I feel about a lot of these concepts that we unpack in grad school. I'm like, is it cake? Is it an ideology? And it usually is, but it's very good at pretending that it's not. So, yeah. What What is not based in these ideologies, right? And it's I, one of the things that I think is hard is that I think that, a, a, especially in 2020 and all the conversations, I do think that there was, and I, I think I said this to you, there is a difference between now and then. Yeah, there's the hateful people. They, they, they were always like that. They just weren't as loud. Or there wasn't mm. as much being focused. In fact, I think they were always like that. It just wasn't as much focused on them, right? Um, and then there were always people actually doing the work. 
This has always been true. You could go to any century, there's people doing the work and there's people who were like the worst. Sure. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, because, and, and, and of all cultures, like it's not like there weren't white people fighting for abolition, right? And it's not like there weren't, you know, people, the black people they were working with, right? You know, so this is, there's always been, since there were people. Um, or if we're talking about racism, well, since there's been a racism and so forth, but you know what I mean. Um, and, I think there is a little bit of a difference and I don't know how to measure this because someone's probably doing this research and it's going to be published in like 2049 in a journal nobody reads. But um, someone's like, I'm going to start a longitudinal study about white attitudes about racism and it's going to take me 30 years. I'm like, why? Um, <laughs> <laughs> people do that. I read a research like proposal yesterday and the, the methods are so complicated. It's like, why are you doing this? You're never going to finish. <laughs> What's the point of research that you don't finish? I know. Well, part of the problem is I think in grad school, like a lot of my proposals were like the the professor is like, you don't actually have to do this study. So just pretend that you could do whatever you want and you have unlimited funds. And then I'll be like, okay, I'll be doing this study for five years and I have, you know, I'm going to have a hundred participants. <laughs> yeah. So, I- yeah, I try. I always stayed practical because I don't think I could have written something that I don't think is practical. Even my book, which has a bunch of ideas that are not going to happen tomorrow, I think that they could happen if people wanted them to. So you know, I don't just make nonsense up. You know, but like, yeah. So this complicated, you know, research, uh, you know, development and and uh, the way that research studies. So anyway, all I'm saying is about I do think there's been a slight difference in the fact that there are more people who seem to be trying to engage for a longer period of time. It's not the people on TV one way or the other. There have been more people where they really have tried to do things. And it's not that, you know, this corporation is never going to do this thing again. Right. It's not that. But there are I think there are some people who really did like some thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. after that mm-hmm. right it happens every time there's a few people but I, I there were there were more people doing stuff and i don't mean to say that that like everything has an ethics or anything like that but i yes. mean like there are more people that i've been able to talk to about this stuff than i would have been before and then there's some people who i realize i could definitely never talk to you but that's not different i just learned <laughs> like those people <laughs> didn't change i just found out <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you know, I, I got, and, and then there's people where I find out in small ways that they understand racism on like a top line level, but don't understand all the other systems that it impacts, like like aspects of like home ownership and and you know, I, there's people, and I said this, I definitely said on the podcast before, where like, especially a white family, like if you live here in New York, right, moving out because it's cheap, whatever, but like you know moving to raise a child in a place that's like super super white when you don't have to i'm not talking about an academic who ends up in a certain college town right although you can sure. think about where you live in that yeah. college town but yeah but there's, there's still fewer options in a college town than there are in like new york just in terms it's just fewer houses or <laughs> places to live um sure and you know, I, I'm like, no, but you, you don't quite get it. <laughs> you know, where, where you'll understand the, like, I think it's really easy for people to understand police brutality is wrong. Some people obviously disagree, but I mean, yeah. like, that's a pretty, like, straightforward thing. And I think more people get that now. They don't really get how to fix it, but they get, they're not, like, denying that that's a thing. More, more people. Yes. Um, which is nice. It's like 120 years late, but 
you know, <laughs> this has been going on for a while. <laughs> People are like, I can't yeah. believe. I'm like, we've been telling you. <laughs> you should have <laughs> listened to us. But on this one thing, I think, like, there has been something. And then I think that there is, although there's loud people yelling about it, there genuinely are a lot more people who are just like, oh, yeah, we probably shouldn't be calling that the master bedroom. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah. Just like, oh. yeah, like I think there's been a lot more space created for those conversations in the last two years. It's changed. The discourse around it has changed dramatically. And I think you're right. I've also noticed like more people interested in trying to do something differently uh, for a sustained period of time. One side effect of all of that, which I don't know, I, 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 I don't want to be too hard on people, but like one thing that I think drives me kind of nuts is that the sensitization around race, especially for white people who are maybe encountering or thinking more deeply about issues of race for the first time, seems to reinforce for people a lot of like racial logics or this idea of race as like this static category. And then people get really invested, like I'm a white person and like really invested in race as like rigid categories. And I see this on TikTok all the time. I'm on TikTok. I'm on the border of Gen Z and millennial. And so I'm always on TikTok trying to figure out where the discourse is. But you see people on TikTok fighting all the time about race. Like, is this person, can this person really be considered black or can they be considered Afro-Latinx? I think they're really white because they, you know, like there are people like really invested in like race as a biological reality and an ontological reality. And um, I also see this with white people who um, in becoming sensitized about racial issues, like, yeah, double down on this idea that like race is some sort of fixed category. And I'm not sure like, yeah, what the consequences are, but yeah, go ahead. I don't, I mean, it's not good, but it's also like, I think what happens for the, with those people, because it's true, those are the people who learned some things and decided that their energy was best spent policing like language. Um, <laughs> not that there isn't reason to do that, but like, you know, they, they're the people who got insufferable and, and had the backlash of like people being woke or whatever, right? Is that like, you know, black people have been talking about the word woke for like 40 years. And then as soon as white people started, yeah. as soon as white people started using it, other white people were like, what is wrong with you? Um, which is like, honestly, some of them, I'm just like, yeah, like, what is like, shut up. <laughs> You're not talking. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's like, it's things like, I think it is correct to, to say, you know, it's more polite to say unhoused versus homeless, but I feel like there's a lot of white people who will stop there and be like, great. We have now changed. Yeah. The word. We have now changed the word. I'm like, but, but where, but where do they live? <laughs> you know, like you right. didn't do anything, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, yeah. So, I mean, I have to get to an end point here in a second because, you know, I mean, bedroom, my wife has to go to sleep, which is what happens every night when I record these. But, um, yeah, the, I think what's happening with them is they have, understood the horrors of racism on a like history book level but much more so than most people do when people just don't understand it at all and they understand it 
you know, from a, from a remove, but they understand that these things happen the way that a lot of people understand, like the Holocaust or something where it's not, I'm not saying that it doesn't affect people. I'm saying like for a lot of people who weren't directly affected, it's a historical event. It's terrible. And, but it's not direct directly in them, obviously for people, you know, families and so forth. I'm not, I'm talking, I'm talking about the same against black people. So I'm not saying that these things aren't continuing to impact. But if you're not directly, it's like, hmm, here's a terrible thing that happened. And I think a lot of white people, anti-blackness is like a terrible thing that happened. And now they understand more that it's still happening. That's mm. the first that's the first step. But they didn't remove the white logics in their head, the categorization yeah. logic, right? Because yeah. they're, it's a very what, post-positivist way of thinking. Like, here's a problem, yeah. and we're going to yeah. fix it. And it's more of them understand that they're not going to fix it quickly now. That's one of the changes. Like more people seem to understand that we're not going to fix it quickly. And that is a little yeah. bit different. Like I still think that, you know, there's places that are still very like, we saw racism, but they're also getting made fun of. Like that's actually like, like they're losing money in the sense that like when they do something cringy on racism, it's bad for their, their bank accounts. So they, they try not to. Like it's that, yeah. that in a weird way, there are aspects of capitalism that are pushing this which is i don't love that but i also it's, it's still not bad <laughs> you know <laughs> I'd, I'd rather they don't say the bad things just right, don't, yeah, do, don't do it so anyway this was a definitely a, a fun interesting conversation um and i'm glad that you were able to take part in it because i uh i had fun having the conversation we went all over the place but that's how all the episodes are so thanks for being yeah here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I've followed your work for a long time, and it's definitely – it's something I encountered in my master's program and has shaped the kinds of things I'm interested in reading and doing and shaped my practice. So thank you so much for doing what you do, and I'm excited to read your book. Um, I think it's coming this week, so I've been, like, really, like, waiting by the mailbox for it. <laughs> Well, that's got to be a fun experience for you then. <laughs> you know, I guess it's like the first, I guess it's kind of like when I was on the vocal fries the first time, I was like, what? This is the thing that made me want to do this. And then I was on the show like a year and a half later. So that was pretty cool. So I guess it's like that. All right, Hannah, you have a good evening. Then. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care.